Welcome to the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, physician and award-winning author Dr. Gabor Mate discusses his work at the intersection of addiction, science, psychology, and compassion. The talk, which explores everything from the mind-body connection to psychedelic research, was recorded on October 30, 2015, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode, find us and subscribe on iTunes, on our website, and digital comments. Thank you. I'll begin by telling you an anecdote, uh, 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 a real-life case history. This is a woman who I've not met personally yet, but I will be meeting her in a very few weeks in a very special context, about which more later. But her first name is Mandy. She lives in Boston, and it was four years ago that Mandy was diagnosed with a condition called scleroderma. Now, scleroderma is one of these autoimmune diseases uh, in which the immune system attacks the body it is supposed to be protecting. Autoimmune diseases include multiple sclerosis, colitis, Crohn's disease, rheumatoid arthritis, systemic lupus, probably fibromyalgia, quite likely Alzheimer's, and many other diseases have autoimmune features. So that what you have is the body's protecting mechanism turning on the very organism it is meant to, meant to support and, and defend. In the case of scleroderma, sclerosis, as you're probably aware, means hardening, and derm, of course, has to do with skin, as in dermatology, so the hardened skin. And what happens in scleroderma is that you get excessive deposition of... Uh, a connective tissue fiber called collagen, so that really the whole body stiffens. And it's in, in its systemic form, it's fatal, because this, not only the skin stiffens, so that you have a person like Mandy, who could, being an executive assistant at Harvard, uh, she could type 120 words a minute. By the time her disease was in full force, she could not even type at all, because the you know, fingers just wouldn't move. The esophagus, the swallowing tube, the muscles stiffen so you can't swallow. Eventually, that stiffening can overtake the heart muscles and the lung muscles, and the result is a very painful and uh, fearful death. Uh, Western medicine professes not to know the cause of scleroderma, and the treatments that we have include uh, usually high doses of steroid medications now, or medications to suppress the immune system so that the immune system will not be as forceful in attacking the body. And these medications can work or at least uh, stave off the progression of the illness for some period of time. In the case of Mandy, they did not. So she very rapidly progressed, rapidly progressed from disease onset to a phase where the doctor said there's nothing more we can do. And she herself was in so much pain that she was actually investigating assisted suicide, euthanasia. And then something happened. And by the way, before I tell you what happened, let me give you a bit of a clue. I said that the treatment includes steroids like um, you know, copies of cortisol. Now, if you look at cortisol it, or its artificial analogs like prednisone and other steroids, they're actually cortisol. What cortisol is, uh, well, first of all, it's the most commonly used medication in medicine. So you go to a dermatologist with the skin eruption, you're going to get cortisol cream. You go to a gastroenterologist with an inflammation of your intestines, you're going to get doses of cortisol. You have a flare-up of your multiple sclerosis, you get an infusion of cortisol. You have inflammation of joints in rheumatic conditions, you'll get quite possibly put on cortisol or one of its analogs. Now, some of you may know 
what cortisol actually is in the human body. And what cortisol is, is the stress hormone of the body. It's the body, it's the hormone, the chemical that our adrenal gland secretes whenever we're stressed, whenever we're under threat, and it has a function in the fight or fight mechanism, mostly by giving you more sugar with which you can have more energy to fight back or to escape. So here's the thing. Here we are across the board in medicine using the stress hormone to treat all kinds of conditions of the lung, of the intestines, of the skin, of the nervous system. And we never ask ourselves as physicians, my gosh, is it possible that stress may have something to do with the onset of this condition? You think that's an obvious question to ask, but we don't ask it. Now, let's go on with Mandy. So Mandy was in a situation of actually craving and actively investigating, killing herself, or get, getting some help getting killed herself. And she is now able to type not 120 words a minute, but 50 words a minute. But at least she's writing her autobiography. And she's quite a powerful writer. So I'm going to quote to you a paragraph from her work in progress, which is Mandy's autobiography. Feeling my skin tighten with the cruelty of a balloon that won't pop, gravity pulling at my every aching joint, I often thought of only how I would have welcomed the warm, black dull of sleep over anything in the living world. I hadn't slept in two years. I lay in bed, unable to remain in a single position for more than 15 minutes, rolling like a broken tortoise, side, back, side, throughout the night, occasionally falling off into the mind's night, only to turn to a body that had been tortured in its prolonged position while I was away. How I paid for every scrap of sleep. My eyes somehow always closed and always seeing, somehow always dead and always dreaming. My body just continued to stiffen. It was like undergoing mummification, like a self-mummification over time. It just kept spreading and spreading throughout my body and the pain was just unbelievable. Mandy finally was unable to walk without assistance and she could do very little for herself. She's now walking by herself and she's typing her autobiography at 50 words a minute. Something happened. And what happened is that she discovered ayahuasca, which is a shamanic brew about which I'll tell you more about later. And that ayahuasca experience began her on the path of healing when everything else had failed. Now, I'm a classically trained medical doctor. I worked in family practice for 20 years, addiction medicine for 14 years. I also for seven years worked in palliative care, looking after terminally ill people. If eight years ago you would have told me that I'd be seriously telling you an anecdote about somebody with a potentially and seemingly terminal illness who got better because they drank some bitter brew from the Amazon and that I would actually be talking about this seriously, uh, I would have looked at you and said, what are you talking about? So before I tell you how I'm completely willing to accept now that it was that experience that helped Mandy's healing journey. Let me tell you why I believe it. So the medicine that I was trained in, which is Orthodox Western medicine, and that's what I practiced mostly for all those years, and it's what is being practiced uh, by most of my colleagues. It's not just a science. We like to believe that medicine is a science, and it certainly has scientific bases to it and, and, and scientific features to it. And wherever we can apply the science clear in a clear-eyed fashion, it's miraculous what we can achieve. I mean, it's just stupendous what certain interventions, whether it comes to diseases of the eye or certain cancer treatments or... Uh, fractures, uh, many other conditions. It's miraculous what modern medicine can do. 
So I want you to understand that this is not a rant against mainstream medicine, but I'm also telling you uh, that in addition to medicine being a science, it's also an ideology. And by ideology I mean that there's a set of embedded beliefs that people don't even know that they have. So that these are the implicit assumptions that govern our practice and our relationship to our work and to our clients. And so, as happily as I am to acknowledge the advances and, 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 and the miracles of modern medicine, what I'm focusing on tonight, not to denigrate any of that, but what I'm focusing on tonight is the ideological blind spots which limit our work and which particularly limit our work with people with chronic illness such as Mandy. So I've distinguished, there might be more, but I've distinguished five basic beliefs that um, are characteristic of mainstream medical practice. And the mistake that we make I found beautifully described in a wonderful little book called A Story Waiting to Pierce You, Mongolia, Tibet, and the Destiny of the Western World, which is about ancient shamanism as it influenced Greek philosophy uh, 2,500 years ago. And here's the quote. We have learned to forget, we have learned to forget that the way things appear to us outwardly is often the exact opposite of a deeper truth. So that how that applies to Western medicine is that we see surface manifestations and we believe that to be the reality. And we don't see what is the deeper truth that underlies those realities. Therefore, we make a number of fundamental errors. One of them is that we separate the mind from the body. In other words, we believe that what happens to people mentally, psychologically, emotionally has little or most significant impact on the onset of illness or on the healing process either. So we separate the mind from the body. Let me give you a ex couple of examples. So we know from a number of studies that children whose parents are stressed are more likely to have asthma. In other words, the more stressed the parents are, and in fact we know this from studies done here in California, that amongst other places, so that the more stressed the parents are, the more likely the child will develop difficulty breathing. What happens in asthma is you get inflammation of the airways, which obstructs the flow of air, and narrowing of the airways due to spasm of the muscles that surround the air tubes. And the more stressed the parents are, the more likely the child will have uh, asthma. As a matter of fact, in, in a study done in Los Angeles, they showed that, um, that the degree of depression on the part of the parent will actually influence whether or not the child will have to be hospitalized for the severity of the asthma and how much medication the child will need. Now, this is demonstrated fact shown in a number of studies. It's not new, but it keeps, it keeps getting reconfirmed in more studies. Which would impel us if you're a physician looking after an asthmatic child, that you would ask a question about what's going on in the family. What stress are the parents under? What's happening in their lives? Well, that doesn't happen. What we do, and we do this necessarily, is we give medications to open up the airways and to suppress the inflammation. Now, the medication that we give to open up the airways is either adrenaline or a copy of adrenaline. The medication that we give to suppress the inflammation is either cortisol or a copy of cortisol. In other words, the body's through stress hormones. Now what's the connection between stress on the parent and the lung functioning of a child? It's very simple. There's a quote I'll give you. Well, I won't give it to you now. I'll give it to you later, maybe. But it's very simple. If the, child, if the parent is stressed, the child is stressed. It's that simple. If the child is stressed, the child's stress mechanisms are being exerted and overused. And eventually, the child develops resistance to its own stress hormones. And now we have to give extra stress hormone to keep the airways open. Which is to say that the asthma of the child is not simply a physiological event, but it's connected to the child's emotional state. And furthermore, 
the child's emotional state is connected to the parent's emotional state. And furthermore, since the parent's emotional state is not separate either from the culture and society and economic milieu in which the parent lives, it actually takes a whole society to make a child asthmatic. And in, uh, in uh, Chicago, for example, the children of Puerto Rican parents who are under particular economic and uh, cultural stresses have doubled the asthma rate of other kids. Now, to understand that is to understand that human beings are not simply physical entities, but that we're biopsychosocial creatures. In other words, our biology is actually inextricably interwoven with our psychology and our social relationships. And you can follow that throughout the life cycle. A study in Australia looked at 500 women with breast lumps, people who had uh, some kind of a growth in their breast tissue that needed to be biopsied for cancer. And the, these women underwent a psychological interview. And before the results came back, or when the results came back, it turned out that if a woman was emotionally stressed, that by itself did not increase the chance of the love being cancerous. If a woman was emotionally isolated, that also had zero immediate effect. So far, so good. But if a woman was emotionally isolated and stressed, the risk of that lumping cancers was nine times as great as the average. And the researchers could not understand this one because they said, how does zero and zero add up to nine? This is what the linear thinking medical mind will say. Zero and zero don't have to nine, but this doesn't make any sense. But think about it for a moment from a biopsychosocial perspective. If you're stressed, that's not just an emotional event, it's a physiological event. You can have higher levels of cortisol and adrenaline. Cortisol and adrenaline, in the short term, help you fight back or to escape, as I said before. In the long term, they kill you. Adrenaline over a long period of time will constrict your blood vessels, raise your blood pressure, increase the risk of heart disease or strokes. Adrenaline will do that. Cortisol, in the short term, higher levels of blood sugar, so you have more energy for the flight-fight response. In the long term, will give you diabetes. In the long term, will ulcerate your intestines. In the long term, will put fat on your belly so you have more of a risk of heart disease. In the long term, will thin your bones so you get osteoporosis. In the long term, will suppress your immune system. Now, let's go back to the Australian study. All of a sudden, it makes sense. Take a woman who is um, stressed, but not emotionally isolated, because she knows how to share about herself. And there's somebody there to share with. So if this woman is sitting there stressed and a friend says, hey, friend, how are you feeling? Do you want to talk about it? What happens to her hormone levels, her stress hormone levels? Whew. They immediately abate. And her system is no longer under assault from these high levels of hormones. But what happens if that woman is not only stressed but also emotionally isolated? That means that the stress is going to magnify, because isolation magnifies stress. And then for months, she may be stewing over this incident that stressed her, or this loss that stressed her, and she'll be stewing in her own stress juices, suppressing your immune system. Any wonder, therefore, that the woman who's stressed and isolated is more likely to have cancer. Which means to say that cancer is not the disease of an individual. It reflects a whole set of relationships with the environment, particularly the psychological, social environment. Now, I'm not saying that stress is the only cause of cancer. I'm saying it's a major contributor. And here's the problem. Uh, as a family physician, I, I, I would see people when they were born, when they were dying, in palliative care, certainly. I saw a lot of young people dying because of cancer. I saw people getting sick, and I saw people staying healthy. So I began to develop a sense of who stays healthy and who doesn't. The specialists don't see that, and it's not in their training to see it. So that you go to a specialist, the disease has already been identified, or at least the organ in the body in which the disease is showing up has been identified. So the specialist only sees sick people. So when you go to a dermatologist, or a neurologist, or a laryngologist, or a gastroenterologist, or a cardiologist, a pulmonologist, a respirologist, they see sick people only. And let me ask you, just a show of hands, how many of you have been to any kind of an ologist at any time? 
Okay, many of you have. Okay, now put your hand up if the specialist ever asked you about your childhood, about your relationship with your parents, any traumas in your life, your relationship with your partners, spouses, friends, your relationship to your work, any of that. Put your hand up if that was asked of you. So now we see five hands as opposed to 50 or more that we saw before. So that it's a very narrow approach that we take, which would be okay if it was scientifically grounded, but it isn't, because the science shows that mind and body can't be separated. I'm not going to go into the science of that right now, that'll be more my subject tomorrow, but you can't separate the two. Nor, as I've already said, can you separate the individual from the psychological environment. We're biopsychosocial creatures. That's who we are. So that's the two first separations that we make, is that we separate mind from the body, individual from the environment. Specifically, people like Mandy, who um, develop severe autoimmune disease, there's a third factor as well, which is trauma. Now, trauma, I've never seen anybody with scleroderma. I've never seen anybody with any, any, without, with any autoimmune disease whether it's colitis, Crohn's, multiple sclerosis, all the ones I mentioned before, chronic fatigue, probably fibromyalgia. I've never seen anybody with those conditions who had not been to, who had not been to some significant degree traumatized in childhood. Certainly in my addiction work, I've never seen anybody who wasn't traumatized. In, uh, as, as I often say, in 12 years or 14 years of addiction work, I, I didn't have a single female patient who had not been sexually abused as a child, not one, not even by accident. And the studies show, studies done right here in California, large-scale population studies have shown that the more adversity, the more stress, the more trauma that you endured as a child, the greater your risk for addiction, for mental health issues like addiction, uh, anxiety, uh, depression, psychosis, and also the greater the risk for autoimmune disease. But the word trauma does not exist in the medical lexicon, except in a sense of physical injury. So most medical students never hear the word trauma mentioned even once throughout their training. And this continues to be the case in most medical schools. So I asked Mandy, did anybody ever ask you about trauma? And Mandy contacted me because she read one of my books and she found herself in that book and she wanted to talk and um, so we've Skyped a number of times so I asked her well anybody ask you about trauma she said no nobody ever asked me about trauma none of the specialists that asked her about trauma I said okay tell me about your childhood so she's Korean she was in a foster care for the first year of her life so she had one separation from the birth mother that's a trauma she had another separation from the foster parent because an American couple, an evangelical Christian uh, married a man and woman, adopted her at one year of age, so now she had a second separation from caregivers. She was brought to the States where the mother then suffered a major mental illness when she was a child. And the father, in a state of religious remorse, confessed to Mandy when she was 19 that he had sexually abused her from age 2 to age 11. And Mandy had totally suppressed the memory of that. So this was news to her. How we compensate for that kind of trauma is very often to... because one of the impacts of trauma is to make us feel worthless. And then we compensate by trying to make ourselves worthy and how we make ourselves worthy is by being very helpful to others and taking on all kinds of stresses on others' behalf. And it's those stresses, it's those stresses then that lead to the onset of conditions like scleroderma. But the question, and I've never met anybody with scleroderma who has not severely traumatized the child. But these are the questions that we don't ask. So the, the third... Um, The third loss, or the third missing piece then in the medical ideology is this ignorance and almost deliberate refusal to consider trauma 
And it was a physician here in, in San Francisco, Dr. David Smith, who's the founder of the Haight Ashbury Clinic, who said to me that the medical profession is traumaphobic. Let me then come back to trauma in a moment. Then the fourth problem with Western ideology, medical ideology, follows from the first three, is that because we ignore all those links, we think that the problem is purely biological, and therefore the solution is purely biological. So then we can take out our pharmacology, and our surgical techniques, and our radiation, and other kind of interventions, which sometimes, again, are, are very powerful and helpful, but which never get at the cause of any particular problem. So for chronic conditions like Mandy's, they just are partially helpful and in the end not helpful at all because of the strict biological orientation. And even when it comes to psychiatry now, we're living in the age of biological psychiatry where the belief is that all psychological conditions, psychiatric conditions from addiction to depression to anxiety are simply biological problems in the brain and the way you deal with them is you manipulate the biology of the brain by means of medications. Now, having taken psychoactive medications myself, uh, both for my ADHD and also for depression, I can tell you they can be helpful. And this is not a rant against medications. But what I am saying is that that doesn't mean that the problem can be reduced to a biological substrate because we are biopsychosocial creatures, which means that our biology is itself reflective of our psychological, emotional, and social relationships. Therefore, simply to switch to biology doesn't deal with the underlying issue. The fifth hiatus then in the medical perspective is that as a result of the first four, we don't recognize what shamanic traditions and what Ayurvedic traditions in India and the qi medicine of China and tribal medicines in North America have always recognized, which is that human beings have an innate healing capacity. So that in the Western mind, Western medical mind, we, the experts, are going to provide the cure, or in the case of conditions like ALS and scleroderma, in the end, we don't know how to cure it, and therefore, there's nothing to be done, you're just doomed to die. Which is what Mandy was told. But that there should be some healing capacity inside the body that actually could be encouraged and invoked and evoked and, and supported. That doesn't occur to us. It's not part of our approach. We don't know what to do with that. Even if we're aware of it, we don't know what to do with it. But we're not even aware of it. Well, now, let me then come back to trauma. What are the impacts of trauma? Now, most of the time that people think about trauma, they think of bad things happening, sexual abuse, being beaten, being abandoned, being neglected, being emotionally assaulted as a child. You must understand something. That's not the trauma. The trauma is not what happens. The trauma is the impact of what happens in the body and in the mind and in the psyche. That's what the trauma is. And my friend, the trauma guru, if you like, Peter Levine says that trauma fundamentally is a disconnection from the self. And the California-based, I'm not trying to make you feel good, but he, he does live in California, uh, spiritual teacher Almas, or Hamid Ali, puts it this way. And, and I know that Hamid Ali has spoken at events presented by CIS, I believe. And he says, the fundamental thing that happened, and the greatest calamity, he's talking about childhood, is, is not that there was no love or support. The greater calamity, which was caused by that first calamity, is that you lost a connection to your essence. That is much more important than whether your mother or father loved you or not. So the result of trauma is that you lose the, lose the connection to your essence, to your true self. Why does that happen? It happens because our essence and our true self, they're not spiritual, vague constructs. They have a very physical substrate in the body. It has to do with our gut feelings. When you're connected to yourself, you're connected to your gut feelings, and when you have a gut feeling, you believe it and you act on it. This is how human beings evolved. If human beings had not learned how to rely on their gut feelings, they would not have survived. 
If they learned purely to, relate, to, to rely on their intellects, there would be no human beings. Because the gut feeling is what actually tells you what is appropriate, what is dangerous. So, when you experience trauma, you lose the connection to those gut feelings because your gut feelings are telling you to flee and not to trust these people. But what chance does a two-year-old have to flee if he's in a traumatic situation, or she is? None. The only thing she can do to survive is to suppress her gut feelings, suppress them, and lose the connection to herself. And just how pervasive that is, let me ask you this question, and raise your hand if this applies to you. If you've had a powerful gut feeling about something at some time in your life, and you ignored it, and you were disappointed, or, and you were... Mm, you were sorry afterwards that you didn't listen to your gut feelings. Just put your hand up if that's happened to you. Okay? Vast majority of people here. A few liars, but most of you. Are, uh, uh, raise your hand if you had the, fall, the, other, the opposite experience, that you had a powerful gut feeling about something, and you ignored it, and you were glad afterwards. Now raise your hand. This shows you the importance of being connected to the self, right? Because when we're not, we lose out, and we make the, do the wrong thing, and we make mistakes, and we, and we, and we put ourselves in, in a way of harm. So the impact of trauma is that you lose that connection to yourself. The impact of trauma is that your relationship to the world changes, because all of a sudden, how, the Buddha said that with our minds we create the world, which is true. But before with our, worlds, with our minds we create the world, the world creates our minds. So the mind with which we look at the world is created by our early experiences. If you're traumatized, the world you live in is one in which you cannot trust or in which you don't know who to trust. So you may trust the wrong people and not trust the right people. That's the world you're going to live in. So one of the impacts of trauma is distorting our relationship to the world. Other impacts involve mental health issues, which I won't go into in detail now, but we can talk about it in the question period if you want. Physical health issues, as I mentioned already. Relational issues. It means that in relationships, very often we enter into partnerships with people equally traumatized. In fact, not very often, but universally and uniformly and globally, we enter into relationships with people at the same level of trauma that we had, and then we expect that other person to take our trauma away from us. And when they trigger our trauma, instead of taking it away from us, then we blame them. And we think we're with the wrong person. So we find another person who will reenact our trauma for us. And we go through the same thing. Unless we've learned something about ourselves in the meanwhile, but often we haven't. So early trauma then affects our relations throughout life. And of course, um, it has cultural aspects, disconnection from culture, shame, loss of tradition, and loss of spirituality as well. So these are the impacts of trauma, very briefly summarized, and this is what Western medicine ignores. Let's come back to Mandy then. So she does ayahuasca. It's not that the substance cures her. It's not that biologically it does something that all of a sudden she's better. What happens is that it's a psychedelic. Now, psychedelic means mind manifesting. That's the actual meaning of the word psychedelic. And psychedelic substances have been used by human beings, <coughs> excuse me, for thousands of years, but not randomly and not in an anarchist kind of way. They were used traditionally in ceremony, under the guidance of deeply trained and devoted elders and shamans and teachers. And the purpose wasn't to go on a trip, but to go on a journey, which is very different. It wasn't to get high. It was to have a higher awareness of yourself and, and your reality. And so, when I talk about 
the use of psychedelics in healing, that's the context in which I'm talking about. I'm not talking about you go home with a bunch of friends and you drink ayahuasca or take acid or whatever. It has to do with intention and it has to do with context and it has to do with guidance. Now in Mandy's case, the guidance had to be purely internal because she couldn't leave her house to go somewhere and travel somewhere to do ayahuasca ceremonies. So she actually did it at home without much guidance. But there was something in her that allowed that guidance to emerge. And Mandy experienced entities coming to say, we're in your life and we will hold you. Now let me say something about the nature of trauma again. Although it's obvious to see why sexual abuse and, and being hurt in all kinds of ways would create trauma in a person, it's less obvious that there's a much more common form of trauma, which is what we call developmental trauma, which doesn't have to do with bad things happening, but with good things not happening. In other words, some kids are hurt because bad things happen to them, but some things are hurt because the good things that should have happened did not happen. And that's, that's something that should have happened is the presence of parents who can emotionally hold you when you are in pain. Not just physically hold you, but can emotionally hold you. So, as an American California-based psychoanalyst says, developmental trauma occurs when emotional pain cannot find a relational home in which it can be held. So that when I'm a one-year-old infant, um, as some of you know from my writings, in Budapest, Hungary, a child of Jewish parents, under the Nazi occupation, when I'm in emotional pain, who can hold me? My mother can't hold me emotionally. Her pain is too great. Her grief about her parents' death in Auschwitz. Her terror about her husband's absence in a forced labor battalion. Her um, awareness that every day could be the last one of her life. How can she hold my pain? That's the trauma. That's developmental trauma. It does not take such dramatic circumstances for developmental trauma to manifest. You don't need a war, you don't need Nazis, you don't have to be Jewish. It helps. <laughs> but, uh, but, but, but you don't need it. It helps too if you're a black woman living in a racist environment, a single mom with no support where the state makes you go and travel two hours each way every day to get some lousy job and you, live, and you, live, you leave your kids in an inadequate daycare. It helps to traumatize people that way, but you don't need that either. It's enough that the mother should be depressed. It's enough that the father should be angry. It's enough that the parents should be distracted because of their own travails of relationship and then the child is no longer held emotionally. And that means that the child, in order to survive, will disconnect from himself. Because it's too painful to stay connected to your pain. So, when these entities show up for Mandy, and they say, we're going to hold you, well, you can understand it in any number of ways. I've done ayahuasca quite a few times. I've never had any entities showing up for me. I've never had Mother Ayahuasca, <laughs> you know, when you are of darkness, Mother Mary comforts me. Mother Mary never shows up for me, you know. I just sit there with a stomach ache. <laughs> but that's maybe because I don't need these entities. I don't know. Maybe I'm not ready for them. The way I understand those entities showing up for Mandy, what are they? They're actually her essential self that can actually hold her, that can create the internal environment to be held. It's her trust in life. It's her willingness to open up and be vulnerable again. It's her willingness to drop her defenses, her compository mechanisms, where she has to be everything for everybody. Those are the entities that are holding her. Now, if you want to believe that these are real entities that should offer her, why would I argue with you? I don't care. They did their job. And then Mandy began to look at her life and have some insights. And she then writes, she wrote to me, it made me realize 
that, that all of those traumas that I've experienced in my life could be meaningful. It meant to me that they were also manageable. So the trauma is no longer bigger than she is. She's not equal to them. So, in August of this year, I was here in San Francisco, staying with a friend. I was on a speaking trip, and I had a day off. And what better can you do on a day off than to do some mushrooms? And, um, but I didn't do it to trip out on anything. I did it as a journey, and I did it with the guide of a very experienced and very astute therapist. So, and I said to her, knowing my experience with psychedelics, that, look, I'm, I have a very thick mind. It's hard to get through it. You better give me quite a bit. So, so she did. And I still sat there for two hours saying, why the hell is nothing happening? Well, something eventually happened. Let me tell you one experience that I had. I'm lying there on the, co on, on, on the mat, on the floor, and there's the woman, um, I won't name, uh, but the therapist. And I'm fully aware that my name is Gabor, and I'm fully aware that I'm 71 years old, and I'm, this is who I am in the world, and I'm here in San Francisco at my friend's place, having an experience with this therapist, and I've just taken mushrooms. So I'm there, as an, I'm there in the present. But at the same time, I'm also an infant. And I'm lying on, the, on this little mat on the floor, <clears throat> and I'm sobbing, and I'm curled up like a baby. And I'm looking at this woman, my helper, my guide, and I fully know her name and who she is and why she's there, but at the same time she's also my mother. So I'm having a double experience of being there as an adult and experiencing myself as an infant at the same time. And I'm crying and I'm looking at her and I understand that this mother, the mother that's sitting over me right now, there's a significant difference between my poor real mother and this mother is that this mother can hold my pain. I don't have to, I don't have to suppress myself for her. And the words that came in my mouth were, I'm so sorry for having made your life so difficult. So there's a six-month-old or one-year-old apologizing for the mother's pain. And there's the shame that we all carry. There's the deep guilt that we all carry. We think that we have shame and guilt because of what we did or what we didn't do? No. The shame and the guilt fundamentally has to do with what we were unable to do because we never could have done it, which is to make our parents happy. And then we spend our lives compensating for that shame and the pain in one way or the other. We might do it by being extra nice, we might do it by doing drugs. But somehow or another, um, that shame goes back to our earliest months before we have any recollection for it. And that, that memory came up very powerfully for me uh, during the psychedelic experience. Because again, what the psychedelic does is it, it manifests the mind. Now, theoretically, I could have told you this before. I didn't need this experience to tell me the theory of this. But it took that experience to allow me to fully embody it and to know what it felt like and what it must have felt like. And it was so good to get it out. And some of the similar processes happened with Mandy as well, in that she actually learned that if she can accompany her childhood traumatized self with the awareness and compassion of an adult, then she can heal herself. And so the healing has continued. And now she's at the point where... Um, where she's able to attend a retreat that I'm going to lead with the plant in, a, in at the end of November. And she's going to be able to travel a long distance from Boston and come to a fairly isolated little village somewhere and participate with us. And that's what the plant did for her. Not the plant. What the plant did is it opened, up her, opened her up to understanding the trauma. Not just understanding in an intellectual sense, but actually experientially but also understanding the power and the love that really is part of our essential selves that can hold all that pain, that can hold that trauma, that can compassionately witness it without being destroyed by it. And if our parents could have done that for us, if they had, if they had not been so stressed, 
if they had not been so distracted, so depressed, so troubled, then they could have held our pain. Never mind not inflicting pain on us, they could have held our pain. And then we wouldn't have had to hold on to that pain, we'd have just let go of it. Now Alma says, my mentor, he says, the child is very open and can feel the pain and suffering going on in its immediate environment. The child is aware of its own body and can also feel the tension, rigidity of pain and pain in the body of the mother or of anyone else he's with. If the mother suffers, the baby suffers too. The pain never gets discharged. It gets blocked in the body, in other words. The organism does not develop the confidence that it can regulate itself. So we have all these kids these days with self-regulation problems. All these adults with self-regulation problems. Many of them are running for president right now. <laughs> the uh, almost continues. He says, if the pain and frustration continue, they will have a disintegrating effect on the organism and the child will develop organismic fear for his very survival. Just because the parent wasn't able to hold the child's pain, the child's sadness, the child's fear. And not because the parents necessarily didn't try to do their best, not because they didn't love the child, not because they weren't dedicated, simply because they were incapable, based on their own stuff. So when you connect with the essential self, you develop that holding capacity. And then you no longer confuse yourself for your compensatory mechanisms. So Mandy no longer has to please everybody. She no longer has to do everything for everybody. First of all, her body said, no, you can't do it anyway. But she's no longer driven to do so. And so what she's doing instead is exploring her truth. And hence her drive to write this autobiography. So, I don't want you to think that I have a messianic view of, um, of psychedelics. I don't think they're going to save the world. I don't think they're going to heal everybody. I don't think they're the answer to the world's problems. What they are is a healing modality that we're utterly foolish and blind not to investigate further, such as CIS is doing, and not to incorporate further, because surely to God, our mind-based, intellect-based, Western approaches are so limited in what they can do for chronic conditions, whether that's depression, anxiety, addiction, scleroderma, we're very limited and we're mostly fiddling with surface manifestations and not with the essential causes that I've been outlining here. I'll just um, read you a couple of acknowledgments that people have sent me about their ayahuasca work. But, you know, ayahuasca is the plant I'm most familiar with. I've, in the last um, two years, I've experienced one time LSD, uh, one time. Um, MDMA once, uh, 5-AMEO-DMT, and a number of times, a couple of times mushrooms, and, one, and, and a few times with my work, ayahuasca. So that's the one I'm most familiar with. This is what somebody writes me. Since the end of February, my first ayahuasca experience, I'm daily experiencing a shift in my consciousness, my presence within and with others, including animals. I see everything I've done from a completely new perspective and live it daily. So writes a man in his 30s himself with a history of trauma who works with traumatized people in my home province of British Columbia. I'm able to see the difference I make to ease the pain of others, help them see themselves in a different light and give them a bit of brilliance and sparkle even as they rolled out into ambulances while both of us are aware that we will not see each other anymore in this form. And this is somebody who wrote to me from New York, and I think he might be sitting here in the audience. Uh, he said, in my day-to-day -day, day -day capitalistic pursuits, I often meditate on ways I might help other people in a deeper way. Why is that the case? Because the plant opened him up to his essential self, which is pure compassion. And the plant did that first 
by helping him develop compassion for himself and for the pain that he had repressed in childhood. A man came to us for an ayahuasca retreat with ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. I'll be talking about that today, I won't say much more about it now, except that it's a terminal most of the time, not always, interesting enough, but most of the time, degenerative condition of the nervous system. And this man had a form of um, ALS called Balber ALS, which is to say that it was not the muscles of the body and the trunk and the arms that he couldn't move anymore, but he was devo devo developing difficulty with his laryngeal muscles, so he had trouble speaking. But eventually it was going to kill him. And uh, <coughs> I don't mean to mimic him, but I'm just trying to capture some of the cadence which he spoke. He said to us on the first day, I came here because I want to live. And he could barely get the words out. After the second ceremony, he said, in a much more grounded and deeper, powerful voice, when I first came here, I said that I wanted to, I wanted to live, and I thought that meant that I wanted my life to be longer, to be extended. But I realized that that's not what I need. I meant that as long as I live, I want to be alive. I want to experience myself authentically in a way that I hadn't before. And so he did. He lived another year and a half. I don't know whether we extended his life at all in terms of time frame, but certainly his life deepened significantly as a result of his experience. The difficulty with these experiences, whether it's with um, ayahuasca or any other psychedelic modality, is what do you do with these experiences once you have them? Because it's one thing to have an experience. The plant can open up doors for you, and it can open up windows of perception for you. But it can't make you go through those doors, and it can't make you take in the truths that you're glimpsing through those windows. That walk and that process has to happen when you are no longer under the effect of the substance. So the integration piece, that's always the greatest challenge. Because the human being, um, as the Buddhists well realize, but as we all know, is very much controlled by what the Buddha calls our habit energies, our ingrained neuromuscular and emotional psychological patterns. And we live in a world that rewards us for being inauthentic and punishes us for being authentic. And we live in a world and a culture that seduces us from our true selves with every possible blandishment, reward, and, 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 and promise of fulfillment through artificial means. And we live amongst a lot of people who are as unconscious today as maybe we were yesterday. So that the difficulty is in integrating the, the knowledge, integrating the insight. And that's the hardest task. And I don't want to claim that I've discovered the answer to that one. But anybody who, who does this kind of work, they really have to pay attention, not just to what happens in the experience, but also what do you do with the awareness that may result from that experience? And how do you make that work in your life? The other problem is, um, as Alma says, that the mind, the egoic mind, always, always wants to invalidate your essence. Because the egoic mind develops as a replacement for the essence. When essence shows up, the mind is threatened. The ego is threatened. So it wants to fight back. So when the psychedelic substance momentarily really reveals the mind, what's underneath the mind, and puts the ego onto the sidelines, as soon as the effect is gone, the mind wants to come in and reclaim its territory. And it does that by invalidating or making nonsense of the experience that you just had. So let me give you a rather funny example of that. So to one of our retreats comes a woman from British Columbia who is 40 and she's um, in a job that she doesn't like and there's something creative in her that she's not able to express, not able to uh, embody in her life. And so she feels blocked and she says, I'm blocked, I'm here because I'm blocked. 
Okay, so we talk about that, and then she has her first experience with the ayahuasca, the ceremony. I don't lead the ceremonies, by the way. I work with people who are shamans. I'm not a shaman. And uh, <clears throat> next morning, Louise is her name, after we sleep, and we gather in a circle again to talk about the experience and to integrate it and you know, to, you know, to process it. Louise is just in a rage. I can see she's very angry. I said, well, you seem upset, what's going on? She says, because I came here all the way, I paid all this money, and all I had was I had a psychedelic experience, like if I was an acid when I was a teenager. I said, okay, what did you see? She said, all I saw was this psychedelic Indian elephant. And I didn't come all this way just to see a psychedelic Indian technicolor elephant. <laughs> and... Not that I know a whole lot about Hindu mythology, but I do know a tiny little bit. So I said, well, could you just describe this elephant for me? <laughs> Some of you know, right? Who was she describing? Ganesha. And Ganesha is the god that removes obstacles. She came to have her obstacles removed, and she saw, the god shows up. <laughs> in her vision, and she says, I don't want to see psychedelic elephants. <laughs> now, there's only one problem, is that her mind had a certain idea of what this experience ought to be like. When the experience happened the way it happened, but not according to the wall groove track that her mind had laid down, she rejected the experience. That's what the mind does. The mind is nothing but a resistance to reality. Now, if she had actually been able to, at that moment, say to herself, hmm, why is the plant showing me this particular elephant? What is this elephant trying to tell me? She would have had the breakthrough. She just laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed. I have to tell you, she quit her job, despite her fears, she's got a new business that's doing very well that she's very happy with. This is not a pep talk, come and do ayahuasca and you'll be rich. It's not about that, okay? <laughs> it's about how to work with the plant. And how you work with all these substances is you don't believe your mind, you trust the experience and you stay curious. Just You just stay curious. What's, why is this thing happening now? And from that point of view, people say I had a terrible night or I had a, you know, I had a beautiful night. Well. That's just the mind judging the experience. There's no terrible night. There's just a night in which you experienced fear and anger or terror and difficulty and maybe physical distress. That's not terrible. If you're curious about it, all those things are telling you something that you need to know. It's only terrible. Terrible just says, I'm resisting what happened. So that the biggest obstacle to movement forward in life in general and specifically in the work with these substances, is resistance to the experience that's actually there. So curiosity. And I would also say guidance is important because we're too close to ourselves to know. I would not have had the same experience with the psilocybin this summer at my friend's place if I had been there by myself. It did take that woman to be there. And, and, and to guide me and, 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 to, and, and for me to know that I'm being held emotionally. So I can tell you more about the context that we've created, but that doesn't matter so much. What matters so much is that if you're going to take this route to self-exploration, healing, truth-seeking, whatever it is, do it in the appropriate context and with the right kind of guide. Now, I've quite deliberately not said anything about spirituality up to this point, but clearly human beings are spiritual creatures as well, and obviously the psychedelics can be, can be, they can be an escape from spirituality. We can use anything for an escape. They can also be a, an opening to spirituality. And by spirituality, I don't mean visions, I don't mean um, entities, I don't mean angels, I mean the embodied awareness, or as she say, the manifested it's hard to even find the words for it. <sighs> Eight months ago, I was in this weekend workshop, not facilitating, but participating. 
and they did some holotropic breathwork. Now, holotropic breathwork was de was was um, developed by Stanislav Graf, who's a is a, is a, a Czech-born psychiatrist, I think, Czech or Polish, Czech. Czech-born Czech psychiatrist who in the 60s used to work with LSD and other psychedelics, but then that became um, uh, forbidden and, and, and discouraged. So he said, well, how can I help people achieve an altered state in which they can get some of the benefit of psychedelic work? So he developed holotropic breathwork, which is fundamentally controlled, guided hyperventilation. And what that does is it changes the acidity of the blood, so your pH of your blood changes slightly because you're blowing off carbon dioxide. <coughs> so I'm into this holotropic phase of this workshop, 10 minutes of hyperventilation, you might say, and all of a sudden I notice that my ego my egoic mind, which is always thinking, always having opinions, always judging, always reacting, always thinking, always having a point of view, becomes very small. And it's kind of on the sidelines. It's no longer front and center. It hasn't disappeared, but it kind of becomes like a little kid watching a football game, you know, where big guys are playing and he's not the center of attention. And I'm just with the experience as it's unfolding. I'm just with the experiences as it's, it's unfolding. And by spirituality, I mean the awareness that we're not our egoic minds, that we're not necessarily our bodies, that there's something deeper, not, at least not the way we think of our bodies, and there's something deeper and more eternal and more connected about us. That's what I mean. That's my very rudimentary understanding of spirituality. And... Um, and I thought to myself, I just laughed to myself afterwards. Like, here I am, most of the time, taking myself so seriously. My thoughts and my emotions and my reactions and how I feel about this person, how I feel about that person, who I'm attracted to, who I'm repelled from, what I want, what I don't want. And all you have to do is to change the chemistry of my blood a slight little bit, and all that stuff just disappears. So the who the hell are we, you know, if what we think we are is so dependent on a particular physiological state. So the psychedelic experience can lead you towards that exploration of who are you when you're not all those things. I can't give you the answer for that, that you'll have to discover for yourself, and I'll have to discover it for myself. Um, from a perspective that I've come to understand, Disease, challenge, pain, anxiety. They're not things to get rid of. No, not, not that I want anybody to have them. Not that I encourage you to seek out disease or seek out pain. You don't have to seek it out though, it comes to you. And if it comes to you, we can take two approaches. We can take the approach of the mind which is, I don't like this, get rid of it. And that's the medical model. I don't like it, get rid of it. And why wouldn't you want to? I mean, you'd wanna, you don't want to have disease, right? But here's the deal, you have disease, or you have dis-ease, or you have discomfort, or distress, or something. It's also possible to look at these states not as enemies to be fought, the war on cancer. Here's a 10-year battle with cancer. You can also look upon them as a teaching. That there's something in your life, not that you asked for it, not that you deserve it, not that you are somehow guilty or to be blamed for it, but that there's something in your life that is being manifested through that condition. And you may as well seek to learn what that something is. And that's why I've had the experience, even in palliative care, when people were dying and they would say to me sometimes, Doc, you know, this cancer was the best thing that ever happened to me. And they don't mean that they wanted to die. They didn't. 
what they meant was, and, and, and of course any of you who have been through addiction, you hear this in the addiction circles all the time, recovery circles, that this addiction was the best thing that ever happened to me. Why? Because in dealing with it, those people actually learned to connect with their essential selves. And that to them is much more precious than physical life itself. Now, I don't want to convince you of that. I don't want to convince you that being connected to your authentic self is more beautiful and more important than being in touch with your essential self. You'll have to find out for yourself if that's true for you. All I'm saying is, whatever you're dealing with, whatever your challenge you're dealing with, and whatever form it shows up, see if you can take the perspective that whatever else you might want to do with it or about it, you can also learn from it and see it as a teacher. And that's what Alma says. He says, your conflicts, all the difficult things, the problematic situations in your life are not chance or haphazard. They're actually yours. They're specifically yours, designed specifically for you, by a part of you that loves you more than anything else. The part of you that loves you more than anything else has created roadblocks to lead you to yourself. You're not going to go in the right direction unless there's something pricking you in the side telling you, look here, this way. That part of you loves you so much that it doesn't want you to lose the chance. It will go to extreme measures to wake you up. It will make you suffer greatly if you don't listen. What else can it do? That's its purpose. So in that quest for reality, in that quest for self-knowledge, in that quest for connection to essence, in that quest for uh, knowing the truth of things and the why of things, you don't need psychedelics. People have walked, traveled that journey very often in many, many ways without psychedelics. At the same time, in the right context, with the right guidance, with the right intention, psychedelics can be a powerful teacher along that road. So whether you're called to that or you're not called to that particular pathway, that's up to you. Nobody should be evangelical about it. But if you are called to it, just making sure that your intention is clear and that you have the right guidance. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast for the California Institute of Integral Studies. If you liked what you heard, Find us and subscribe on iTunes or listen on our website, ciis.edu slash public programs.